The first reading this morning is from Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 to 5. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken the word of the Lord. The Lord be with you. The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, and it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call him John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay at the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service had, was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. The Gospel of Christ. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. 
As we remain standing, let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word through which you speak and reveal yourself to us. I pray now in light of that truth that I as preacher just get out of the way, far less of me, far more of you. That your people gathered would be edified, your son Jesus glorified. For we ask this in his name. Amen. Would you be seated please? In the Greco-Roman world, news was delivered from place to place by heralds. They would run from town to town carrying the details of objective, history-changing events that impacted everything. A famous example of this was when in 490 BC, the Persians invaded Greece. The Athenian army met them for battle on the plains of Marathon. And it was expected that the Persians would be victorious. So in light of this, the city of Athens was in the grip of great fear. Knowing that if the Persians broke through the lines, the city would be at their mercy. Now to everyone's surprise, the Athenians prevailed. But they realized immediately that they would need to get this news back to Athens to dissuade the panic and the looting and the trampling over one another as they made good their escape. And so they sent a herald who ran from Marathon to Athens, a distance of, you guessed it, the length of a marathon. And he arrived when he was only able to cry out, Rejoice! We're victorious! before he expired of exhaustion. The herald carried objective, history-changing events that impacted everything. Not only news of a battle won, but the ascension of a new king, perhaps a peace treaty ratified, and this objective, history-changing news was called in Greek, euangelion, gospel. And the carrier, the herald of that news, was called an evangelist. The early Jesus followers adopted this language. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus was an objective, history-changing event that impacted everything. This was gospel. Their adoption of that language was subversive. For in a culture saturated with the gospel of Caesar, Caesar is Lord. Caesar has put down enemies by violence and brutality. Caesar has won your peace. These Christian evangelists would speak of Jesus is Lord. Jesus has defeated the enemies of sin, death, and hell by laying down his life. Jesus is the bringer of peace through forgiveness, love, and grace. Now, the gospel contains, or the Bible rather, contains four gospels. And today, the beginning of a new church year, on the first Sunday of Advent, we open a series on the gospel of Luke, the doctor, the evangelist. Now, Luke is unique amongst the gospels. He's the only New Testament writer who wasn't a Jew. He carries the gospel as a Gentile to Gentiles, and as such, it is the gospel for the outsider. 
More than any other gospel, Jesus, or Luke shows us, Jesus' heart for the other. Not only is this good news for the Jew, it's good news for the Gentile. Not only good news for men, it's good news for women. Not only good news for the free, it's good news for the slave. Not only good news for the rich, it's good news for the poor. There is no one for whom this gospel does not bring good news. No barrier that it does not cross over. And so Luke this year will help us as a church continue to press in to the kingdom concerns of Jesus. Luke, as we heard, writes to a man named Theophilus, meaning friend of God. Most excellent Theophilus, the title of a Roman official. He writes in the most sophisticated Greek of any gospel writer. He wants the educated cultural class to know this Jesus. Luke writes likely in the early 60s. Too soon for any legends of Jesus to grow. How do we know this? Well, we have two volumes of Luke's work. His second is the Acts of the Apostles. And as he's writing of the life of Paul, he suddenly flips into the first-person plural, revealing himself to be a traveling companion to Paul. Paul was executed in the mid-60s, but Acts contains no record of this, meaning it was likely written and distributed while Paul was in prison in Rome 30 years after Jesus' death. Luke, written before that, means that there are still eyewitnesses alive. And Luke tells us that he went to them and received reports from them. And he uses a very distinctive Greek word that speaks of that ancient uh, practice of memorizing an event or a teaching word for word so that it might be faithfully passed on to subsequent generations. What Luke has received, he now delivers to Theophilus and ultimately to us, so that we, he says, might be certain, might have a solid foundation on which to build our life, a life of living out the implications of the gospel, the historical, changing, objective events of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Now, it seems right up front that Luke wants to tell us that this gospel has got personal and cosmic implications. It's going to change your life personally, and it's going to change the world in which you live. And Luke reveals this through an incredibly vivid story of the gospel's Jewish roots. Now, this Jewish story opens with a feeling of deep heaviness, the absence of hope, a tyrannical king, and the silence of God. You see, for 400 years, there had been no prophet in Israel. For 400 years, God had been silent. The promises of God echoed through the scriptures that a king of the line of David would sit upon the throne of Israel, bringing a time of peace and prosperity. And yet, these are the days of King Herod, Not a king of the line of David, he was an Edomite, a tyrant of a man, choking the life of the nation with fear and mistrust. 
when he first came to power, he had the entirety of the previous administration butchered. He had 35 leaders, or half the Sanhedrin, killed. He couldn't even trust his own family, as he had a wife, a son, a mother-in-law, and then two other sons killed out of concern for the safety of his power. Israel was under foreign rule. Rome, the occupier, Herod, their puppet king, who held their subjects under thumb through severe taxation. How many in those times would have cried out to God in agony, yearning for change, for God's promises to come to fruition, for Messiah to come, and yet nothing? Silent for 400 years. But this despair was not only the experience of a nation. It was the personal agony of a priest named Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth. Luke invites us into their grief. They have no child, no future hope of a child advanced as they are in years. I know there will be people here in this room who have known the difficult struggle with infertility. Or if you haven't personally, you have walked with someone who has. And I don't think words can capture the grief, the loss of hopes and dreams, the toll that it can take on a marriage. And Zechariah and Elizabeth would have known this grief, but for them there was another level to it. Because culturally, Blame for infertility was laid solidly at the feet of women. It was grounds for divorce. And if a husband were to take those grounds, his wife would be left destitute and childless. In the religious framework of their day, it was believed that fertility was a sign of God's blessing and barrenness a sign of God's judgment. Such a destructive theological framework is as prevalent today as it was then, just around different things. Life didn't turn out as you would have wanted it. Well, either I'm to blame, I've sinned and God is punishing me, or I didn't do anything wrong and God is not good. He's not giving me the life that I deserve. And I suspect that there's a thread of that thinking that has weaved its way through every single one of our hearts at some point in our lives. It certainly has in mind. Luke wants to dismantle any such connection, to pulverize such twisted and harmful theology. And he counteracts any such theological presumption by giving us key details. Zechariah, a priest. Elizabeth, the direct descendant of the first high priest, Aaron. They have the best of religious pedigree. Not only that, but they're also deeply faithful, blameless. They're wholeheartedly committed to God's way. Their state, our own state, whatever it might be, grievous as it is, has nothing at all to do with sin outside of natural consequence. Has nothing at all to do with God's judgment. It just is is. We've got to hear that. But how many nights would they have laid awake, praying their hearts out, 
as you may do for other things, yearning for what you most desire. Perhaps like them, you have come to a place where hope is lost. The silence, deafening. Their names, in light of the state of their nation, in light of their personal tragedy, seem to be mocking them. Zechariah, Yahweh remembers. Elizabeth, God keeps his covenant. All they know is silence. Now, Zechariah was fulfilling his priestly duties. At the time, there were far too many priests for the work. And so, outside of the major feasts, where all 18,000 of them would come to Jerusalem, each group of priests, 24 in all, would only be needed in Jerusalem for two weeks a year in one-week increments. Now, the highlight of being a priest was to offer incense, something you could only do once in your lifetime, and many never had the opportunity. Zechariah is chosen for this by lot. He would never again be able to do anything more significant. This was the highlight of his priestly career, to take burning coals from the altar to the bowl of incense, and come before the presence of God and pray for his people. The prayers symbolized by the rising smoke of incense coming up to the Lord. Now what would he have prayed for? A child? No. He had a job to do. As our intercessors on a Sunday have a mandate to offer our collective prayers before God, to pray in such a way that all of us can say, Amen, Zechariah would have prayed for Messiah to come. He would have prayed Isaiah 40, our first reading. He would have prayed for the consolation of Israel, for their nation to know freedom, forgiveness, the promises of God come to fruition. For this was the heart's cry of his people. And this is what he would have brought before God. And then, in the middle of the prayer, beside the altar, an angel, a messenger from God, for the first time in 400 years, God speaks. The silence is broken. Your prayers have been heard. Which ones? All of them. Not only the one he prayed that day, but every single one before it. Know this. God hears your prayers. Which ones? All of them. Will he answer in the way you might want him to? No. But that was never the promise. But what we can count on, know beyond a shadow of a doubt is that he hears. The angel speaks. Elizabeth will conceive and bear a son. It's the personal implication of this gospel. He will be a prophet of the living God. Cosmic implication of this good news. Turning the hearts of the people toward their God. Preparing the way for Messiah. 
Luke is telling us by this story that this gospel, this history-changing event of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection has both personal and cosmic implications. It will change your life personally, and it will change the world in which you live. And so how should we respond to this? How does Zechariah respond to this? With praise, wonder, awe, thanksgiving? No. No. Doubt. How will I know this? And who can blame him, right? People past childbearing age don't have kids. He's reasonable. And the angel says to him, because you have responded in this way, you won't speak until these things are fulfilled. Now, what are we to make of this? I used to think and was told that this is God's punishment for unbelief. But is it? Is it really? I mean, this story is almost a mirror image of the text that Karen will take us through next week. The same angel, Gabriel, comes to Mary six months later and says, you, Mary, will conceive and bear a son. And her response is the exact same as Zechariah. Doubt. How will this be? I'm a virgin. Virgins don't have kids. So how does the angel respond? With punishment? Because you've responded this way, Mary, you're not going to be able to speak until this comes to fulfillment. No. No, no, he sends her to Elizabeth. He says, go speak with her. She's conceived a child in her barrenness. Is this punishment for doubt? Is the angel sexist? Doesn't seem that way, right? Elizabeth and Mary meet. They share a conversation. A moment of deep, Holy Spirit-shaped connection. And the fruit of that is the Magnificat. Mary's song. The joyous overflow of her heart where she glories in the goodness, character, and promises of God. Reflecting that her whole life orbits around who God is and what God has done. Zechariah. Silent for nine months. Elizabeth gives birth to John. His tongue released. The fruit of that, the Benedictus. Zachariah's song. The joyous overflow of his heart where he glories in the goodness, character, and promises of God. Reflecting that his whole being orbits around who God is and what God has done. These stories are mirror images of one another. What brings Mary there is conversation. What brings Zachariah there is silence. How can one be gift and the other punishment? No, no, they are both gift. They are what each needed to bring to that place, them to that place where they glory in what God had done where they found their sure footing on this good news and lived it out in their lives. As I reflected on that this week, it reminded me of the most transformative prayer that I have ever prayed in my life. 
It was a prayer that I prayed some 20 years ago in the midst of likely the darkest season that I've experienced so far in life. It seemed that every aspect of my life was in tatters around me. And one night, angry tears streaming down my face, I prayed, shouted, and this is the PG version, up yours, God, how dare you let this happen to me, I've been a good person. Now, Tim, how is that the most transformative prayer you've ever prayed? Well, the Spirit used that prayer to expose what was at the core of my heart. There was faith there, yes, but it wasn't gospel faith. It was a religious faith. It was a faith that said, if I do good things, I deserve a good life. And if I do bad things, I deserve to be punished. I'd done bad things. I was a sinner. I didn't think I'd done anything near enough as bad to deserve what I was going through. And so it couldn't have been my fault. It couldn't have been sin's fault. It must be your fault, God. You're not keeping up your end of the bargain. So up yours. At my core was faith, yes, but not a gospel faith. What was needed was a whole new foundation. And by God's grace, it came. I wasn't much sleeping during that season. So I spent my nights in my garage rebuilding an old motorcycle, listening to sermons by Tim Keller and Jack Miller, both of whom in the silence centered my thinking on the gospel. Two friends walked with me during that season. Our conversations were centered on the gospel. If this is who Jesus is and what he's done, what does it tell you, Tim, on how you should navigate this season of your life? And in the silence, in the conversation, the gospel began to come alive in me, yielding the most incredible growth that I have ever experienced in my life. Luke writes to Theophilus, and ultimately to us, I want you to have certainty. I want you to have a sure foundation on which to build your life. And what is that foundation? The gospel. The objective, history-changing events of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. The things, Luke says, that have been accomplished, done, fulfilled, nothing more to be done. You see, many of us approach the gospel as if it says, do, do, do these things and you'll live. No, the gospel says, done. These things have been done. Now go live in light of them. Many of us approach the gospel as if it's an invitation, inviting us to a certain way of living. No, 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 the gospel's an announcement. This is what has been accomplished. Live in light of it. Many of us approach the gospel as if it says, obey and you'll receive these things. Love, acceptance, forgiveness, salvation. No, the gospel says, in Jesus you have these things. Acceptance, love, forgiveness, salvation. Now, allow your joyous gratitude for those things to overflow into joyful obedience. And how does that shift come about? When we, enabled by the Spirit, reflect on the gospel, the finished work of Jesus, 
in worship, in small groups, in conversations with fellow followers. When we put down the phone and we turn off the screen and sit with the truths of what has been accomplished in Jesus and say, if this is true, how does it impact how I see myself? If it's true, what does it say to my unforgiveness, my fear, my anger? If it's true, how does it shape how I work, spend my time, my money? If it's true, if it has been accomplished, finished, completed, done, how then shall I live? And so in conversation, in silence, may the gospel, the accomplished work of Jesus, be pressed down, down, until it catches fire in us, comes alive in us, consuming our thoughts, catching up our emotions, directing our wills, because before we even begin, it is done, completed, finished, accomplished by grace alone and to his glory alone. Amen? Amen. You've just listened to a podcast from Little Trinity Church in Toronto. Please check out our website at www.littletrinity.org to find out more about our ministries and services.